now invite you to take your Bibles as we open God's holy word in a scripture reading that is connected with uh, the Sermon on the Lord's Day 51 this afternoon. We will first read from Matthew 6, verse 6 to 15, and we continue to read in Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. So, Matthew 6, verse 6 to 15. That Jesus says as follows, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And as far as part of Matthew 6, continue the same gospel in chapter 12 and start reading in verse 21. Matthew 18 is at 12. Sorry, there's a mistake. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him, that is Jesus, and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. 
and came and told the master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me to. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just that I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that were due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Thus far the word of God. This afternoon, brothers and sisters, we will continue to walk through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I may proclaim to you the word of God as it comes to us today in the fifth petition. Uh, and we will look at the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer through the lens of what we confess in verse day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's on page, uh, page 563 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 51, question answer 126. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us. As we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. As part of this part of our confession, in the response to the preaching of the gospel, we sing Psalm 51, stanza 4. Psalm 51, stanza 4. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus' parables are often uh, pretty easy to follow. They're not complicated stories. You know, we read the stories of Jesus in the parables, and, and most of the time it's pretty straightforward what Jesus is telling us. But then, Close to the end, or at the very end of the story, there is often, all of a sudden, an unexpected twist, a confrontational question or comment, something that suddenly makes you and me part of the story. This is the case of what we have read in Matthew 18. We hear the story. And, and most of us are familiar with the story. And we shake our head. This, this unwillingness of the servant to forgive the few hundred dollars debt of one of his fellow servants, while he himself has just been forgiven a million bucks or more. What a guy. And it sounds pretty fair to punish him for that attitude. And then at the end, it becomes very personal. It becomes very confrontational. Suddenly, it is about us. Not only about that servant. It's about you and me. 
Are you ready for that? See, the question is, when we pray, Father, forgive us our sins, do we really understand what we're talking about? We often use standard formulas, right? General statements. But how much are we really aware of our sins? Do we understand the magnitude of what we are asking for? The seriousness of our sins, does, that, does it really bother us? And then not only the bad things we do or say or think, but also the good things that are lacking. And then, what about the origin of all this? What about the sinfulness within us? The Catechism used a strong language to picture our sinful life. It says that we are wretched sinners with evil clinging to us. And you, you may want to protest we are not perfect. We all know that. We all know that. We all have our weaknesses. We all make mistakes. It's not that bad with us, is it? The answer is yes. This is how bad it is. Now, this is not a popular part of the Christian message, of course. But it's indispensable. If you want to reach out, if you want to call people to faith in Jesus, you cannot skip the fact that Jesus came here to pay for our sins. You cannot skip the fact that we need forgiveness and that we need it badly. And also that forgiveness is not something that you earn, but it's a matter of grace. And that's the message for this afternoon. Forgiveness is by grace alone. And we will first see in Lord's Day 51 uh, the need for our grace and then we also look at the gift of grace. And we also have to have a look at the evidence of grace. Forgiveness is by grace alone. The need for grace, the gift of grace, and the evidence of grace. Congregation, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer begins with the word end. Just a small detail, but how, and, and how important is that? How relevant is it? that with the word end, Jesus connects the fourth and the fifth petition. It's the only time it happens in the Lord's Prayer. Ever notice that? You remember, in the first three petitions, our prayer was focused on the Lord and on His service. Your name, your kingdom, and your will. After that, we see a shift in focus. And it begins with our daily bread. And that was last week, Reverend Muska's sermon, as I believe. Right? Our daily bread. But then there is right away, connected for your end, the need for the forgiveness of our sins. Have you ever wondered about that order? Why first bread and then forgiveness? Are my spiritual needs more urgent than my physical needs? Should we not first ask for forgiveness and then for bread? But it's good to recognize the wisdom of your Father in heaven. Serving Him is the central goal of your life. And in order to do so, you need food. Uh, pretty simple. If you're starving, you will not be able to serve and worship Him. At the same time, the connecting word end does tell you that forgiveness is just as important as that. You cannot live without food, and neither can you live without forgiveness. 
every day again. Food, every day again, forgiveness. Is that correct? Can you say that? Every day again, forgiveness? Is it really necessary that we keep asking for forgiveness day after day after day after day? Now you might say, of course it is, otherwise Jesus would not have told us to do so. That's a fair point. And yet, there are Christians, and I want to elaborate on that a little bit, there are Christians who have trouble with the whole idea of asking for forgiveness every day. Not because they don't care about their sins, that's not the, way, not the issue. But they believe they have forgiveness already. We are renewed by the Holy Spirit. Our sins have been forgiven. You don't need to keep asking for it. Listen to what the Bible says. Romans 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul assures us that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And then we have the form for baptism in which we have this strong language. We are freed from our sins. We are accounted righteous before God. We have in Christ the cleansing from our sins. So, it's all about what has been settled in the past. And so those Christian believers have a problem with the strong language of Lord's Day 51. Answer 126 talks about wretched sinners. It talks about our evil, our transgressions, as if this dead are daily reality. But that's no longer the case, they say. Now why the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer then? Well, in the fifth petition is the the fifth petition is a prayer of a believer who has been justified long ago at Golgotha. And all that Jesus wants us to pray for here is that we are, are to be reminded of Golgotha, they say. We are reminded of the fact that all our sins have been forgiven already and that in Jesus we are a new creation. I mean, you think of that, that sounds all right. When you say that, you seem to honor the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And actually, is it not a relief that you don't have to worry too much about sinning? But the reality is that throughout the Bible, you and I are urged to humble ourselves. Throughout the Bible, you and I are urged to keep fighting against our sin. The power of sin is still strong. Don't underestimate the power of sin. It's serious. It's inside us. Evil, brothers and sisters, evil is sticky stuff. You cannot get rid of. It constantly clings to us. It's it, 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 it hanging on to us. And the consequences are devastating. Time and again, the power of sin takes you by surprise. You stumble and you fall. And I'm sure you all know this in your own life. Right? 
One day you enjoy the forgiveness of your sin. And you start with a clean slate. God has forgiven your sin. Great, wonderful. Now, and you start with a clean slate. And you're a believing Christian, so you have the best of intentions for the new day that is coming. Today, I'm going to do better than yesterday. Yes, yesterday I made some mistake. Yesterday I did this and this. I'm not going to do it again. The things that I said to that person, never hurtful, I will never say again. The way I treated that person, that was hurtful, I will never do it again. Who says that the next day you will not fall back into your old sinful patterns? Or perhaps that is a terrible sin you didn't even see coming. Do you think that David, man after God's heart, that David expected that one day he would commit adultery with the, with the lady next door, that he would murder a good friend, that he would cover up the whole thing with lying and deceit, but he did. Think of Peter. Peter vehemently said to Jesus that he would never deny him, never ever Jesus, but he did. And if you would say then, oh, don't worry, just believe everything has been forgiven already even before you did it, you're going to make a bad mistake. It promotes a superficial way of dealing with the reality, the painful reality of sin and guilt. You are going to ignore the urgent need for true repentance. And all that might lead you to think that sinning is actually not a big deal. Now, some of you may say, okay, that it could possibly happen, but not everyone will fall in terrible sins like David or Peter. And most Christians are pretty decent folks. Most Christians lead modest lifestyle and no offensive activities. That's true. Fair enough. But you know, so do many of your unbelieving neighbors. Right? Look around in the neighborhood where you live. The people around you. They may not believe in the Lord Jesus. They may not even believe in God. But most of them do not live offensive lives. Decent people. So the question remains, are we all indeed so evil that we need the grace of God every day as the only way to become clean before the Holy God? Well, let's, let's see. If you take a closer look at the fifth petition in the Bible, you'll find out that sometimes Jesus speaks about sins. But in Matthew 6, just the version we have read earlier, he uses the word debts. And it's connected, of course, but it stresses a different aspect. Put it this way. Sin is the bad stuff you should not do, but you did anyway. Well, that's bad enough, but it covers what you do wrong. A debt emphasizes the fact that you failed to do the good things God expected you to do. It covers what is lacking in your life. 
Okay, what is that? What does God expect from you and me that we don't do? What do we owe God, actually? We all know how Jesus summarizes that. Worship and serve God and your neighbor, how? With perfect love. Let me repeat that. Worship God, serve your neighbor with perfect love. What does that look like in your life? Be honest with yourself. Is your love for God, is that a driving force in everything you do? My brother, my sister, how hard is it for all of us to face the real depth of our guilt of sin? How humiliating for you and me to accept our helplessness, our powerlessness, and to cry out to God for forgiveness. How humiliating to know, I can only live by grace, and I need it badly, I need it every day again. And it's not only the fact that you are guilty, but also that you know it. That you know you're guilty. That you feel guilty. Do you feel guilty? You don't like that feeling, do you? I don't. I don't. No one likes that feeling. You are guilty and there's nothing you can do about it. It leaves you embarrassed to acknowledge, I try hard, I try hard from the day, one week into the next, or one day into the next, I try hard, but I mess up again. And I mess it up again. And on my own, I cannot make it any better. When I try, actually, I only make it worse. It's not so nice, of course, you have a huge financial debt. But as long as you think that one day you will be able to pay it back, you're not overly worried. All you need is some extra time, you need to work a bit harder, and maybe a little bit of luck. But when the reality hits home that you can do nothing about it, you're stuck. And then you know, I will need somebody else to fix it for me. I can do it. I can do it. Is this what drives you when you pray for forgiveness? This deep awareness of your sin, of your guilt, your ever-increasing debt with the Holy God? Is this what drives you, the deep awareness that you are indeed a wretched sinner in need of God's amazing grace every day, every moment? Asking for forgiveness, appealing to the grace of God, is that the very heart, the core of your prayer life? How do we pray for forgiveness? Personally, but also as families and as congregation. Of course, in your personal prayer, you can be more specific, and you should, than in other situations with more people. But do we not all fall short here? How often is praying for forgiveness not limited to the formal closing sentence of our prayer. We have lots to, to, to ask from the Lord, but that's all right. And when we are done asking all the things that we need, we close by saying, all this we ask in the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus' sake, amen. Something similar. 
But think of it. What, what, what else can we really do than approach the holy God in deep humility, like the tax collector in Luke 18, who did not dare to look up to God, was beating his breast and said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So, so always remember your urgent need for the grace of God. Always. Always remember what Jesus went to the cross for. Why he went his way of suffering and death. And why he rose from the grave in glory. It was that you and I may know. And that you and I may experience the power of God's grace. Because, and I say it again, it is God's grace that you need. Not only for all your separate sins, but also because you are guilty before God with your whole life. Your confession points at the horrible death of your sinfulness, the evil you were born with. You know what? That's like the permanent fire of a volcano under the crust of the earth. No one likes to be reminded of that. But it smolders under the surface of your life and my life. And sometimes it goes almost unnoticed for a while. To the point even that you might forget it's there. You think, you think you're doing just fine. And then all of a sudden it can burst out in the horrible sins in what you say or do or think. Let me be very clear. In this life, your sin is never just history, no matter what you do. You find it discouraging? It's true, I need the grace of God. He's the only one who can take my sins away. And that doesn't leave much of my pride and my self-confidence. But with this petition, Jesus points out the only way of life is the way of grace alone. So thanks to God's goodness, this petition of the Lord's Prayer does not only underline the need for grace, that's what we just focused on in the first point, but it also reflects the reality that there is in Jesus Christ the gift of grace. Yeah, think of that. When Jesus teaches you to pray, Father, forgive us our sins, then this very instruction tells you already that forgiveness by grace alone is a reality. It is present in the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of our great high priest, Christ Jesus. It is present in his payment for all your sins. It is present in the unique sacrifice of your Savior on the cross. It is the power of the cross where Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. There is forgiveness, praise be to our God. There is forgiveness because Jesus paid for it. And he tells you to ask for it. You are in Adam. And so you share in what Adam did to you. But by faith you are also in Jesus Christ. And so you may share in what he did for you. This is, this is so wonderful. This is so amazing. In this corrupt world, God presents in His Son, Jesus, the reality that God will be with us and that He wants to love us, that He wants to, to be there 
for us, that He wants to have communion with us because of this gift of grace. And so, yes, there is forgiveness. There is the total removal of guilt and debts. The Bible is full of these promises. Think of Psalm 32. I think of that, that wonderful Psalm 103. The Lord has dealt with us in great compassion, not punished us according to transgression. He sweeps the sins of all those who revere Him as far away as east from west extends. Now, these powerful words in the Bible are promises. But they are promises that are so strong, so reliable, so rich and true, you can put them in the past tense because they are rooted in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we do have the cleansing from our sins. And we do have the daily renewal of our life. But we have it only in Jesus. And therefore, the Holy Spirit must impart it to us by giving us faith in Jesus. It's not your daily language, right? The word impart. How often do you do that? Use the word impart every day. But, but what a beautiful expression that is in the form of baptism. The Holy Spirit imparts to you what you have in Christ. What does it mean? It means that the Holy Spirit humbles you. That He makes you repent. That He gives you by faith the boldness to go to your Father. And you go to your Father with all your guilt and with all your sin, with everything you have messed up. You go to your Father and drink from the ever-flowing stream of His love in Jesus. You carry with you this promise of your Savior Jesus. Believe that God forgives all your sins. He throws them out. Farther away and deeper than you can ever imagine. Never to be found again. Never. Your confession says it's so simple and so straightforward here in Lord's Day 51. Forgive us. Do not impute to us any of our sins for the sake of the blood of Christ. Now, here's another word that you will never use in your everyday conversation. Impute. Do not impute. It means do not hold us accountable for the sins. Do not make us pay for our sins, Lord. This is it. My brother, my sister, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1 verse 7. Here you are. Here's the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. The very heart of what your Christian faith is all about. And you will find it in everything your confession says about reconciliation and mercy and forgiveness. You will find it in the wonderful start of the catechism. Lord's Day 1. That my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, has fully paid for all my sins. And with His precious blood, He set me free from all the power of the devil. It's a gift of grace. It's so important. When you pray for forgiveness, even when you think of forgiveness, you can only do so in Jesus Christ. That is only on the basis of grace. Pure grace. Nothing else. Nothing else. Pure grace is it comes to you in what Jesus has done for you. Some have pointed out that, uh, that Jesus himself in, in, in the fifth petition does not use the words for the sake of Christ's blood when he taught us the Lord's Prayer. That's what the Catechism uses. 
And so they suggest that this whole idea of payment by blood is just a human addition here in the Catechism. It's foreign to the prayer, they say. But it's nonsense. You cannot separate this prayer from the rest of the Bible. Throughout the New Testament, the blood of Christ is the only ground for forgiveness. The unfailing source of grace. So plead with your Father in heaven. And for Christ's sake, He will hear. He will forgive. And so we come to our last point about the evidence of grace. This is about this remarkable addition that Jesus adds in, uh, in the fifth petition, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And actually, a bit of a painful addition for you and me, right? It, it brings the serious implications for what you and I do when we pray for forgiveness. It brings that very close by. Actually, uncomfortably close. And Jesus himself highlights this connection between God's forgiveness and ours in Matthew 6. And we've read that. He teaches us the Lord's Prayer, and after that he, he highlights this aspect again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The Lord here puts your life out of grace to the test. This is serious business. If you really want to live and be forgiven by grace, you better show this by living in this grace yourself and by sharing the grace of God with other people. You cannot get around it. You cannot get around it, right? Jesus connects your willingness to forgive, your willingness to forgive. He connects that with God's forgiveness. Does that sound scary? We have a hard time forgiving other people, so that sounds not too great, does it? Now, all the scholars and commentaries are right away putting us at ease here, they say, oh no, the word as, in this petition, as we forgive our debtors, does not mean that God is only willing to forgive me if I am willing to forgive other people. That's correct. Fortunately, that's correct. God forgives out of grace. God's forgiveness does not depend on how good I am or how forgiving I am. True. However, don't be at ease too quickly here. For this is also clear. If you are not willing to show others what it means to live out of God's grace by forgiving them what they have done to you, why would you still count on the grace of God for yourself? Don't take it for granted. It brings to mind what Peter said in Matthew 18, beginning of our second scripture reading, right? He thought that he made a very generous offer when he said to Jesus, Lord, I am willing to forgive up to seven times. Seven times. 
somebody sins against you, says something to you that hurts you, and you're willing to forgive, and he does it again, you're willing to forgive again, he does it again, you're willing to forgive again. Seven times, says Peter. But yeah, one, one moment, it will stop. You can't keep on going, right? But Jesus told him, keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. Even after seven times, just keep going. It never stops, says Jesus. Why is that? Why is that? And then Jesus illustrates that with a parable we have read. Here's the big idea. If you humbly pray and plead with the Lord for mercy and forgiveness, and you do receive that as a gift of God's grace, how can you ever remain a hard and unforgiving person yourself? Try to picture that. Try to picture that. You are willing to receive this incredibly huge amount of grace and mercy that comes from God, right? You don't mind having that. And you are unwilling to show grace to other people? That doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Why not? Well, here's the issue. It shows that you have no idea of the real magnitude of your debt with God. Of the real height and the real depth of God's grace to you. That's why your confession characterizes your willingness to forgive, not as the ground for God's grace in us. That's not the case. Your willingness to forgive is not the ground for God's forgiveness. But it is the evidence of God's grace in us. That does not mean that forgiving is always easy. There's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt in many relationships, and that cannot just be glossed over. Forgiveness is not a magic word that erases every problem just like that. It doesn't work that way. We cannot ignore painful experiences and brokenness and emotional damage. These things must be dealt with. Sometimes they leave scars for a lifetime. Forgiveness does not fix that. Sins committed must be confessed. But here's the point. If you know that you should forgive, but you find it hard to do so, do not focus, first of all, on the other person who has hurt you. Do not focus, first of all, on what he said and what he did. Do not dwell on how you feel about the other one. Think, first of all, of the life-changing power of God's forgiving grace for you. Start there. And that will make you willing wholeheartedly to forgive him or her. That's an attitude matter. When you start there, then you will find the right perspective. Not only how to measure and handle your own hurt feelings and traumatic experiences, but also how to deal with the other person's attitudes, words, and actions. And, and if you conclude, this is possible, if you conclude that it is not the time yet for actual forgiveness, you do have a strong incentive to keep praying for it. 
and to keep working at it. Because you, there is, there is a, the willingness to wholeheartedly forgive him or her. And that willingness can never be taken away. Perhaps wounds are so deep that healing will never happen in this life. The brokenness we face in this world can be beyond our ability to repair. But go through all these considerations within that framework of wholehearted willingness to forgive. Don't separate those things. If you do that, you just become stubborn and unwilling. And again, brothers and sisters, if you only look at yourself, if you only look at the one who offended you, you might as well forget it. Only the love of God can transfer you to a life that is ruled by grace. And if that is your starting point, then other people will see and experience that a Christian is forgiving and merciful and patient. And again, no, it's not always easy to forgive your neighbor. And he or she doesn't always make it easy for you either. And that can make it very difficult. But Jesus says... Put yourself to the test. Do you really want to live by God's grace? Do you really want to have your sins forgiven? All of them? Only because of my blood, my sacrifice for you? You can say, of course I want to. Sure. But does it also come out in the way you treat other people? Does it show in how you are dealing with others in your life? You know, we can, be, we can be pretty stubborn people, right? We can be, be really hard sometimes towards each other. Unwilling to give in. Unwilling to be the first one to make a move. He should come first. Unwilling to bear what we think is injustice. Unwilling to give in to God's, to give in to God's hand the things we cannot straighten out. It happens also in the church. That stubborn pride gets in the way. But open your heart and mind for God's blessing, God's grace. Do not forget that as brothers and sisters in Jesus, we live together out of the grace of God. Trust that you will experience God's blessing if you are willing to live together in forgiving love and grace. Are you willing to show to one another what the blood of Jesus has done in your own life? Are you willing to show to one another what the blood of Jesus is still doing in your own life? It's true, you can be disappointed. Your desire to forgive or to ask for forgiveness can meet a hard-nosed refusal, stubbornness to acknowledge sin or to ask or even accept forgiveness. And you can also come across people who ask for forgiveness with a very superficial, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Don't get hung up on those things. Don't get hung up on those things. Bring all these experience before the Lord and leave it with Him. The Lord can handle that so that you can just keep forgiving. My brother, my sister, 70 times 7 is a long way to go. Believe that God's forgiving grace can make a real new beginning, also between people, no matter how stuck we are. Trust in the God of grace. Trust in the God of grace. And in this trust, reach out to your brother and sister with love and with 
wholehearted willingness to forgive. And do it today. Tomorrow might be too late. Amen.